Welcome to another Charity Chat podcast and I'm your host, Osman Mughal. Today I'm speaking with Kimar Wolford, a fundraising consultant working with charities across the sector. In this podcast, we touch on reasons why charities have been slow in progressing within the equality, diversity and inclusion remit. But more importantly, we examine what practical steps organisations and the sector at large can take to transform within this area. We also discuss on how we recruit into the sector. How can we more meaningfully engage with individuals at school, college or through apprenticeships where a career within the charity world is seen as a viable option? We also discuss how can we dispel some of the misconceptions of working in this vibrant sector. And we end by speaking about a black philanthropic pound. This podcast is sponsored by a platinum sponsor, Charity People. And here is my conversation with Kima. Welcome to the podcast, Kima. It's absolutely fantastic to have you on today. Um, and before we get into the podcast itself and discuss the different topics today, I wanted to get insight into your career and your background. So I wondered if you could give a brief outline of the roles which you've held in the charity sector and what attracted you to the sector in the first place? Yeah, okay. First of all, let me just say thank you for inviting me along um, to, to speak on behalf of uh, you know my experience within the charity sector. And then in terms of my roles and experience, so I, I I started working at what was then the big lottery fund. Um, so I'd never had any kind of experience around um, the the sector as such, never really heard about the, the kind of charity sector um, and got this opportunity to work with this organisation that was giving money. And I was like, oh, there's organisations that just give out money. <laughs> this is crazy. Um, but I kind of really enjoyed um, the the whole idea of, of what it was doing and the impact that it had on, on particular communities. So, you know, I stuck around for a little while, um, for about 10 years. But that didn't mean I, I kind of stayed in the same position that I started with. Um, you know, I, I moved from being a, a grants assistant to being an assessing officer um, to then being, you know, part of the program management team um, and helping to kind of develop projects and programs. Um, and then, you know, managing significant grants, um, which, you know, were 50 million pound plus kind of grants. Um, and delivering grants to other organizations which was quite interesting as well um and then about 2016 there was an opportunity for me to leave i've been there for over 10 years um working with organizations and also working on the front line because i then once i kind of left the kind of large-scale um, grant management i moved into the local um, um officer role at, at that organization and that kind of gave me even more exposure to the kind of groups and organizations and making a real difference in those communities around linking people together around, you know, working with charities about their, their projects and their ideas. And that really kind of gave me the thirst to kind of want to do more of that. Um, at the same sort of time, about two years before I left um, the organization, I started working with an organization called Sported. Um, as one of the charity mentors 
Um, so I kind of helped and, and supported a couple of organisations within the West Midlands region um, to kind of build their skills, their capacity, and also apply for funding. So that that kind of got me into the kind of funding side of, of the sector. Um, once in, in that kind of side of things, I, I kind of came to the conclusion that actually I've, I've got over 10 years of assessment and grant management experience around different types of projects from you know community buildings to um you know building a fence in the back garden of, of a charity kind of thing um which is the kind of broad range of everything but i, I then moved into kind of consultancy um, and started working on a project called the Avocado Project, which is around capacity building for BME organisations. Um, and as I started doing that and developing training videos and, um, you know, one-to-one consultancy support for them, um, I also then moved into project management within the sector, um, working for an organisation called Aston Mansfield, delivering capacity building um, to third sector organisations within the new area. Um, so I've been doing the kind of consultancy and, and project management work for the last couple of years now so um, and really enjoying it so that's my kind of background in the sector and and what I've been doing all these years. Great to hear Kimo especially the breadth of experience that you bring to the sector now in your role um, in your consultancy and I just wanted to touch on what do you think has changed during that period of time within the sector what areas do you think have developed and moved along and some areas which haven't progressed as as much as you would have liked? Um, I, I think one of the, the biggest things that hasn't really changed is it's very much a an insular sector. So we tend to move from one role to another role to another role within the same kind of dynamics of, of being in the sector. We don't tend to leave very often, I mean, for most people, um, but even more so for senior management and CEOs, they tend to move from one role to another, to another, to another. And I think that's a dangerous thing because it doesn't allow for, you know, freedom of thought and, and changing ideas and, and people from different backgrounds to take those leadership roles to the next level or to kind of provide the insight um, of, of the beneficiary groups that we actually engage with and that, I think that's a dangerous thing um, you know and I think it's something that the sector needs to kind of consider and think about um, quite strongly. And given your experience you mentioned that you worked at then the big lottery fund now the National Lottery Community Fund and yeah. you're also working with charities small organizations in your consultancy now so you have perspective yeah. on both sides um, of the equation how do you think that has helped you in your consultancy and what you're doing now yeah I think a, a lot of people come with preconceptions particularly from the kind of smaller charity side um, around the ideas and approaches of larger funders or or funders in general um, you know we have you know beliefs like oh if you apply for too much you're not going to get it or if you you know um, ask for for these types of things there's no way that they're going to give you that because we learn from experience of others a lot of the time and and when others have applied for things they've been rejected but that not isn't necessarily the reason why they've been rejected there may be a world of other things that, are, that they've done wrong but that's the thing that we picked up on because that's the thing that we go oh well all the rest we can't can't change or can't solve so actually 
this is the thing that we're going to tell everybody the reason why we got rejected for. Um, and I think that happens quite a lot within the sector. Um, and, and people start to then believe it. Um, so they, they think it's an ingrained issue around, oh, they don't support groups like us or they don't support people like us. But actually, a lot of funders do want to support these groups. And a lot of the time it does come down to the quality of their applications. Um, and that's not to say there aren't issues um, within the stroke of application processes or um, the people that are making the judgments because, you know, we have our own personal biases and we have our own lived experiences. But the actual reality of it is that often we're both moving towards the same direction. We both want to do the same things. We want to give money out. We want to receive money and we want to do some really good stuff with it for our communities. So I, I think there is just this preconceptions of, of how um, funders perceive us and, and how we perceive funders. And I think a more open dialogue will certainly help within that um, and, and more opportunities for funders to meet um, individuals. And I mean, we, we try and do that through programs like the Avocado, you know, where we have the Dragon's Den every year to try and introduce organisations to funders and introduce them to more and more funders that they, they probably didn't hear about or didn't know about or, or didn't have a clue um, could fund them, you know, and, and that really brings a, a, a level of enlightenment and additional knowledge, which is really important for many of these groups. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to delve into that a little bit more now, Kima. And I know we met because you're, um, in addition to all the other great work you're doing, you're also chair of the Black Fundraisers Network at the Chartered yeah. Institute of Fundraising. So that's another uh, <laughs> another great role that you're doing currently. And I, an area which has rightly come into the focus in the last 12 months or so has been diversity or the lack of it. Why do you think our sector, the charity sector, has been so slow to advance within this area? You would suspect a, a sector that is founded on the principle of advancing equality, that they would be at the forefront of this change. But why has it been so slow to advance within this area? I think there's a couple of things that really kind of uh, inhibit um, organisations within this sector um, from having the, the kind of time and energy and resources to do, do the stuff that they need to do. And I think one of that is the need. Uh, I mean, we we as organisations within the charity sector have a very strong focus on, on need and putting the beneficiary first. And I think a lot of that has been ingrained into the way in which we think and operate around the resources that we try and apply for. Um, so we, we tend to do this thing around, oh, we need as much money as possible to go to the actual cause itself. Um, and when you put more resources into the cause than you do developing your organisation, what happens is that there is a lack of um available time, uh, available people, available resources to enable your organisation to think differently. Um, and when you, you start that kind of journey of trying to think differently, then you start to go, okay, so who's not in the room with us at the moment to help us make the decisions? Um, and that breathing space and thinking space is something that charities just generally don't tend to have. Um, and, and if you don't have that breathing space, it creates all sorts of problems around sustainability, around around resilience, around diversity, you know, and on all of these things play a significant role in terms of, you know, where we go as a charity sector and, and how we should help the public to perceive spending money on, on, 
on helping us to develop ourselves as organizations and i think that's something that um the whole sector needs to kind of think about and and needs to kind of push to allow that to happen and i think charities um funders nowadays are starting to think about um you know the core resources that charities need to become more sustainable and with that kind of change of thinking and mindset will enable us to have more time to think about the the kind of levels of diversity and more time to think about the kinds of things that we need to do to enable diversity to thrive um i think one of the other things is just the lack of awareness um i think when when you get to a certain level within an organization your awareness is more strategic so it's outward looking um and if you have a board that's completely outward looking they don't tend to look internally about how their structure is set up and how that represents the beneficiaries or users that they engage with um so i think that's that's kind of one of the things that is really important is to kind of not just have that external outlook but to also have an internal outlook and and again it comes down to resources about having that time to do both of those things um and then there's desire um we know that the the charity sector wants people to donate to them um and as we've seen from the things like black lives matter um from the the issues around universities and and how they made their money and how they got donations from particular individuals it there is this kind of dynamic of we don't want to bite the hand that is feeding us at the moment um and they're the people that are giving us the most amount of money so unfortunately what we tend to do is we go well if we want these people to give to us we have to have people that are similar to them on the other side asking them to give the money to us um and i think we've fallen into this trap that we don't realize that actually there's many more people out there that are giving money to causes than you could have ever imagined before i mean yes the the typical nature of people that are giving money as are those over a certain age group those that typically have a lot of resources available to themselves and are willing to give but actually there are a lot of people that are, are, are slightly below that and still have plenty of other resources and come from many many diverse communities so the the moment that we can shift our thinking as as the people in charge to kind of think actually who else can give us money who else can donate to us who else can support our cause is the moment that we start to change things internally a lot of great points there your last point around that there being different avenues of funding is really current i know the beacon collaborative for example have published a new report around wealthy givers that are under mm. a certain age group yeah um, yeah definitely and young givers so actually looking at a market of philanthropists or potential philanthropists that can give and engage with charities in different ways than perhaps philanthropists have been doing 10 20 30 years ago um yeah, and also your point around the importance of having a diverse we network yeah and the impact that has on the diversity of thought and i think it's important because we need to make the link as charities between having a diverse workforce and that allowing us to serve our beneficiaries more effectively yes definitely i think we often fall into this trap of going well you know we're doing we're doing everything for the greater good um and because we have this kind of train of thought of doing everything for the greater good we 
kind of sometimes miss the fact that the greater good is including the people in the decision making, including the people in the in the trains of thought, in in the management of projects, and in the delivery of projects. Um, and I think when we we forget that, or when we move away from that, that's when we start to lose things um, that are precious in terms of the way in which this sector works. You know, we're we're about the greater good, and the greater good is about including everybody in in the discussion, in the management, in the training, in the delivery, in the jobs that are available in the sector. So why shouldn't we, you know, ensure that that happens across the board? I now want to turn on what could be the potential solutions, which is not always easy to, uh, to identify and implement. So what can organisations do to ensure that they are genuinely more equitable, diverse and inclusive? And I think it may differ between the size of the organisation. You already mentioned capacity and resources. That might be more challenging for a smaller grassroots organisation. Yeah, but the, the thing that I tend to find is the smaller grassroots um, organisations are typically diverse in the opposite way. So they have more people from ethnic minority backgrounds because often those smaller organisations are developed by ethnic minority individuals within their communities um, to serve their communities or to serve the issues that they have, have experienced themselves. So that, that lived experience is quite an important thing for, for many of these grassroots organisations. So they tend to kind of try and recruit volunteers from those communities and individuals from those communities because that's who they know um, but the issue with that is then you have less resources as a result of the lack of diversity in the opposite direction so it's about creating a balance for organizations on both sides i think one of the things is um internally is about listening um, I think that's something that doesn't happen too often. I think what we we tend to do is we tend to go, oh, there is a problem. And in order to resolve that problem, we need to bring people in from the outside to help us sort something out, you know, because it's it's too big of an issue for us to, to deal with internally. But I think a lot of the time we, we miss the first step, which is to kind of talk with the people that are already in your organisation to understand what their journey has been to be in your organisation and what it's like to live live and work and breathe in that organization. One of the, the biggest things that we, we have um, to kind of firstly tackle is create an environment that allows people to feel comfortable to be within that workforce. Um, and the moment that we kind of forget about that is the moment that no matter what else happens outside of that, we will still always have this issue. Um, around people not feeling comfortable and not wanting to be working in this in that particular environment because you haven't resolved the first issue. Um, I think the other thing that I, I really want to kind of bring out is, uh, you know, once you've established the right environment, um, then you have to create spaces for people to be able to, to talk without punitive actions against them. Um, because we we know that when you're in an organisation, if you don't feel comfortable to speak about any issues that you have, you will never bring that issue towards the people that are in charge that can actually do something about it. Um, and I think the other side of that is openness to receive feedback whether it be positive or negative, um, and not feel that it's something that's um, we should just kind of stomp out or kind of, you know, not explore and get to the bottom of, which are two very important elements of, of trying to ensure that you're doing the right thing. Absolutely. I think you're spot on there, Kimar, particularly around communication between staff at different levels of the organisation. 
Um, I think working in large organisations myself for several years, one of the challenges that can bring is there seems to be a disparity of communication between the very top and, and, and the very bottom mm. of the organisation and having mm. mechanisms in place to ensure that there is that ongoing dialogue across their organisation. So that may mean senior management having three times every Friday in their calendar where colleagues can reach out to them um, that are more junior to ask them questions or certain issues that they're having. And that that honest and vulnerable conversation allows people to bring issues to the fore before they escalate and they get worse. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've seen a lot of stuff recently around diversity issues, around sexual harassment issues, and that's all because of poor communication. It's all because of, of people not being able to voice their concerns or to share their concerns and it being tackled in a way that's conducive to, to allow that open dialogue to continue. Um, so I, I definitely think that's that's kind of a big thing. And then the other thing that I wanted to add to that around, um, you know, how can we make a change? I think a lot of it regards, um, a lot of it is regarding the networks that we try and recruit through. Um, I think the awareness of, oh, let's put an advert out and let's put it out in, in multiple sources and multiple areas that engage with the communities that we want to engage with is something that charities just don't seem to do very well. Um, you know, we want to get the, the the best of the best in terms of the highest degree levels and, you know, the people with the most amount of experience. And and we want to put them because the, the people that you generally think have that are going to be the people that have, have gone to university, that have gone through all the kind of different levels of education and have come out the other side. Um, but actually, the people that really know what the issues are for our communities are often those people that are within those communities. And we have to be able to give them the space and room to grow as individuals within our organizations um, and be able to take that risk. And I think a lot of organizations don't want to take risk. Um, and I think that's what stops them from recruiting individuals that are different. And it has a direct impact on the services that these charities are delivering, because if you have an element of lived experience, of those communities that's important but also recruiting from those communities you can understand that there's a level of trust there yes, so when you're working is. and engaging with communities that level of trust is something that money can't buy and it, it takes years and years to develop so I think charities need to be doing a better job of engaging with communities not only in its workforce but also in terms of its beneficiaries as well. Well, we, we also see that in terms of uh, smaller organisations and how they react and, and inter interact with organisations providing them with support, for instance. Um, you know, working through the Avocado programme, we have organisations that don't trust the, the status quo, don't trust the, the well-established organisations because of their previous experiences with those organisations and those individuals from those communities. Um, you know, we we want to flip that on its head. We want to ensure that actually organisations depend on the feedback, depend on the engagement with those communities rather than the other way around. You know, um, to empower people is far more um, beneficial than it is to just serve people, you know. So that's something that we need to ensure that we do. And we all have the same objective here, don't we? It's to further the cause um, yeah. of our particular charity to ensure you know, as many people as possible can benefit from the services of the charity. 
and therefore yeah, it makes logical sense to recruit a diverse workforce whereby you're not, not only do you have diversity of thought but you also have a different diverse communities representing your organization which is likely to lead to better funding opportunities you know better engagement with those communities mm-hmm. and even at a very basic level an understanding of what some of the hesitancies of some charity um, some beneficiary groups may be to engage with charities in the first place yeah i think you know there's been a long history of, of communities being abused um by the powers that be there has been a long history of people being neglected by the powers that be and the, and the things that serve them or are meant to serve them and and i think if you can create that kind of collective understanding of each other it allows for much better progress to be made on issues that we feel are in, entrenched so when when we have um issues that are so entrenched and so um prevalent in in these communities we need to have people that are living that experience to be able to tell us exactly what those issues are and how we can help to solve those issues together because remember people within these communities have power people within these communities have a say or should have a say about how they're treated and how how we engage with them so why shouldn't it come from people that are also within our organizations that tell us actually oh i wouldn't do that um, you know, because that could be an issue here, um, or I wouldn't do it over these dates because actually that's you know the time for Ramadan, for instance. You know, it's it's just about having that level of uh, equal um, understanding and having that um, ability to engage with our staff and think about things before we put stuff out. You know, so yeah, definitely. And I think something that is important in this discussion, I feel, is we have to guard against tokenism. And I think going back to the point of lived experience, every individual, you know, has a different lived experience, you know, and there are quite rightly, people don't like the term BAME. I don't like using the term BAME, (laughs) but for the purposes of this discussion, if we use um, BAME um, as an example, every individual within that group has a different lived experience. I don't think that particular term is, you know, it's very useful because it categorizes everyone into one group, which is problematic in itself. But using it as an example, everyone's lived experience is different. And it's about tapping into those differences and treating those indiv- individuals as individuals, not mm-hmm. as a group and as an entity. Yeah. I mean, there, there are commonalities between different different. Um, communities but actually there's very different experiences across those communities because they have different barriers that they face they have different ways in which their communities operate and interact with each other you know um you know the for for instance a lot of the asian communities have you know shops and they have five or six shops along the street and they all sell the same thing but actually it's because there are, are different communities within each of those that go to each of those different shops because that's just a reality they they want to go to people that they know and can trust and engage with so the more of that kind of diversity and the more of that thinking around actually let's treat people as people rather than people as groups um then we'll, we'll have a much better result at the end agreed completely agree with that point and i now wanted to touch on the importance of recruiting diverse talent and mm-hmm. we know that if we want to ensure that our sector is more equitable diverse and inclusive in the years to come we need to 
do a much better job at doing that. And I just wanted to get your views on apprenticeship schemes. Should organisations be doing much more outreach work with schools and universities to engage with people from a diverse background to ensure that the charity sector is seen as a potential avenue or a potential career mm -hmm. in the first place? Yeah, I, I definitely believe that we need to do a, a hell of a lot more um, in regards to the way in which we recruit people and and the way in which we tell our story about the charity sector. Because often what we do is a lot of people don't engage with the charity sector unless they've got a lot of free time on their hands. Um, so the, the, the first time that people often relate to the charity sector is when they're either being given services by them or when they're coming in university or, or being in that environment of engaging with them to, to raise funds for, for charities or raise or do events for charities or, or raise funds for other kinds of stuff. So, you know, the first time that a lot of people engage with that is, is way too late. You know, we're talking about the recruitment processes. We're talking about all of that stuff is is at university kind of level. So actually, all of those people before university level, and and as you know too well, um, when we talk about the diversity, the diversity increases at every single step of the educational system. So there's less people from diverse backgrounds once you get to college. There's less people then that go on to university less people that go on postgraduate so there's 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 so many different areas that we need to kind of put um awareness into and um, before we even get to the stage of, of university or college um and the more awareness you have of those environments and the more of you tackling those misconceptions within communities around charities is the more likely you are to recruit people from those communities um you know we've we've heard stuff like um you know parents thinking oh you're just begging for money you know as, as a fundraiser we've heard stuff like um you know, oh, I don't trust charities because, you know, all of these things in the news about charities. And that stuff starts happening from the very early stage. You know, um, the influences that we have from, from the general media, the influences that we have from individuals within our own families um, start to put us off the world of charity from a very early stage because it's, it's oh, if you work for a charity, you're never going to earn enough money to buy yourself a house. Or, you, you know, uh, you're not going to get enough stuff to come to, to do the, the nice stuff you won't get a nice car you won't do this you won't do that you know those are the things that we have to tackle at the very earliest of stages and, and by doing that we're talking about engaging with schools and telling them about the different careers and different avenues that you can take within the charity sector you know fundraising is now considered to be a professional um, career you know we've got a chartered institute of fundraising you know so there are avenues that people and communities that um, you know are often underrepresented can take so why are we not telling the story of, of the world of the charity sector a lot earlier? We, we have, you know, a significant contribution that we make towards the overall economic viability of this country. You know, we, we have a significant number of people that are employed within our sector. So we should be doing a better job of, of engaging in these communities and, and telling those communities at the earliest of stages, at school level, at the college level, at university level. So actually, by the time you get to university level, if you are lucky enough to get to that level for some communities, 
then you already know about charities. You know what they do. You know how they operate. You know what kinds of things you can get from them. And you know the benefits of of being within that lived environment of working within the charity sector because there are plenty of benefits. Yeah, that's spot on, Kima, particularly around your point about dispelling some of the myths about the charity sector and the assumptions made of what the charity sector is like or isn't like. I think that's vital but also seeing it as a career option because yes. I fell into the world of fundraising. As but most I know of us that, do. <laughs> yeah, as, as the majority of us do. But I think you, you rightly mentioned that now we have a chartered institute. Fundraising is now seen as a professional career, professional vocation. And it's yes. something that you're right, we should tell the story of the impact that we have in society, not yeah. only in the UK, but across the world. And yeah, the, definitely. the world is better for it. You know, we do uplift thousands and millions of people out of poverty every single year yeah, you know and definitely. seeing and I think people particularly from from the BAME community are involved in char- charity heavily throughout their throughout you know their upbringing but they don't yeah, necessarily yeah. see it as a career option and it's around dispelling that myth that actually whether you work in policy and campaigns whether you work in fundraising and the charity sector is not limited to shaking buckets outside a train station and I think that's sometimes one of the myths <laughs> the, the, the funniest thing about it is if you look at the charity sector as a whole we have people that do finance we have people that do marketing we have people that do you know um, PR we have loads of different roles within the charity sector and and yes they may not pay as well as certain other roles and certain other areas of the world um, but the reality is is that if if you're not motivated by money um, then you know the the goodness that you you deliver for the the world and and the beneficiaries that you're working for can lead you to kind of go actually you know what i can take a reduction in salary you know i can you know deal with the fact that you know i'm not going to earn as much in in this sector as i am in the private sector but i know the difference that i'm making to the world is is something significant and that's something to be proud of you know and it's something that we should be shouting from the rooftops and another point there is once people work in the private sector for a number of years, they become disillusioned with that sector. And are we doing enough to recruit talent from the, the private sector as well? So that's probably another another conversation for another day. But that's, I think, important element of it because they bring with them or can bring with them a lot of transferable skills you know, they, they also bring with them a different way of thinking. Yeah. And and that different way of thinking can significantly boost a charity's um, approach and earnings um, that we would have never thought about doing because that's just not the way we think, you know. So, yeah, definitely we need to do more in that environment and that area. Great. Thank you so much for that, Kima. And an area which I know that you're passionate about is the Black Philanthropic Pound. For those that don't know, could you explain what is meant by that? We know that in the world that we live in at the moment, there are the pink pound. We know that, we understand that, and that's for the the gay and transgender and and other communities. And they have quite a a lot of power and and influence because of how they spend their money. But actually, the the black and ethnic minority communities spend a lot of money as well. Um, But we've never done any research around, you know, who's spending, what we're spending it on, um, how um, that money has an impact on, on each community. But what we are trying to do now is we're trying to have a better understanding of actually, yes, we understand there is the black um, economic kind of power, which is equivalent to about 300 billion pounds a year. 
Um, but actually, what percentage of that is actually being done philanthropically um, in terms of how much money are, are black people giving um, in terms of, you know, what's the power of that? What, who's doing it? What are they doing it for? What are the influences of it? Um, you know, what impact is it having? We, we don't have any understanding of that in this country. However, if you look across the pond, they've, they've done this analysis in America. You know, they, they've, they've understood exactly how much is being given by individuals from the black and ethnic minority community. So we need to have a better understanding of how that pound plays a part in the society that we live in and who is doing the, the giving from within our communities. And the more understanding that we have of that is the more influence that we can create around the ways in which um, we serve our communities. Um, and, and that's really important for us to have that control. And are you aware of any examples of that research being done? Yes. Um, so at the moment, we are currently undertaking some research around uh, understanding the black philanthropic pound within the UK. And that's being done with about five or six organisations. I can name them for you if you'd like. Um, yep. OK, so we've got Give Black, Black Cultural Archives, the Aleto Foundation, um, Black Fundraisers UK, and obviously the research is being conducted by Running Me Trust. Um, uh, but alongside that, um, the supporters of it are the Arts Council, Paul Hamlin Foundation, the Holick, or Holick um, Family Trust, and a couple of other funders. Um, so it's just trying to get a better understanding of, of who's giving and, and what purpose they're giving for. Um, when, you, when we have an understanding of that, we can then start thinking about how our own communities can support each other through kind of connecting to those funders and also connecting to the wider community of fund, philanthropic giving in general. I think it's so important we do that research and have a, a really clear understanding of how we are um, impacting society. Look forward to hearing when all of that yeah. research is published. Do we do we know when that's going to be published? So it should be out by the end of the year. Um, and hopefully we will have some information about um, how to get involved in the whole process um, after next week um, because we're having our first official meeting as representatives of all the different organizations that are taking part in this um, to enable us to to kind of start set the grounds and and to, to kind of think about the approach that we're going to take um, but there should be plenty of engagement with organizations um, throughout the research period um, and hopefully Black Fundraisers UK will be able to promote opportunities to to get involved in that process along with the other organisations as well. And we'll share those links um, when we publish on our website so everyone has them and can engage um, in a meaningful way, which is really important as well. Um, and Kima, we'd like to end with two quick questions. The yeah. first is, what do you love about the sector? Oh, and that's, that's easy. <laughs> what, and the second is, what is your main frustration about the sector? 
Yeah, so I think what I love about the sector is just the ability to have passion and compassion and love for others. I think that's a really, really key thing around why I kind of fell in love with this charity sector. You know, we give our all. We sometimes work ourselves to the bone to to be able to give everything that we've got to other people. And, and that's pretty special. It's, it's, it's a rare quality. Um, and, you know, it, it's something that kind of gives me pleasure to see other people doing, but also gives me pleasure when I do it myself. Um, you know, it's, it's not about the reward of receiving funds. It's about what we can do when we've got that funds and, and how much of an impact we can have on other people's lives. Um, and I think that's pretty special. Um, and I don't see it in many other places. Um, and in terms of what really frustrates me about the sector, well, I, I think that's just about our uh, <laughs> sometimes fear of of loss in loss in terms of power, um, a loss in terms of position, a loss in terms of authority, and a loss in terms of money. So when when we look at all of these things, we go, oh, not quite sure we should do this thing and and that inhibits us from being innovative it inhibits us from changing things within the sector and and making it a better sector for all and i think once you kind of get over those things and once you put aside those things or or even confront those things because some of them are not real you know like the, the loss of position what what difference does it make if you're actually you know giving your position to somebody else that can actually do a better job and take your organization further you know not being afraid to lose money because that's something that inhibits a lot of organizations if if we do this will we lose our donors if we do this will we lose um, the people that have given uh, the money to us. I mean, how many times have, have you been involved in organisations where uh, an, an individual has said, oh, I, we can't do that because our donors won't like it? Too many to count. <laughs> exactly. And I think sometimes we need to kind of take that fear out of, of the equation and go, you know what, let's do this because it's actually doing the right thing. And, and that's something that I really get frustrated with. I mean, it's like shifting the Titanic um, when we're about to hit the iceberg. Um, and, and I think that's quite a, a poignant thing to say about the sector itself. Um, you know, we, we want to shift, we want to move, but it's because it's so so hard to turn us it becomes a problem and, and we could end up crashing and that's not good for the sector at all the, the other thing is um the viewpoints of those at the top uh, i think until we can kind of um get those individuals at the top of of the pyramid as let's say within the charity sector to kind of really start thinking about actually um it's not something that's a a non-priority it's a necessity because we are moving towards a more multicultural community and a multicultural country as a whole you know the numbers of of individuals that are born um white let's say um are, are reducing um, because of the nature of how societies change um but actually the new incoming communities are having birth rates that are a hell of a lot higher so actually the the, the likelihood is that the majority of people within this country will be of a either by ethnic um, mix or of an ethnic minority mix over time, um, you know, and we're growing at, at a significant number. So actually, if we don't change now, 
and recognize that the, the world around us is changing, we won't be ready when actually the world has already gone to that point. And businesses have recognized this a long, long time ago. And, and we're just 15 or 16 steps behind them at the moment. And I think that's a dangerous place to be because we're the ones that are trying to do good for the community. Absolutely. And it seems that we need to get ahead of the curve on this. And as soon as you're behind the curve, it's very difficult to catch up. So very well said, Kima. Um, well, Kima, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on today um, and to talk through the my range pleasure. of topics that we've had. Um, really appreciate your time. It's been my pleasure. I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with Kima to get his experience, perspectives and insight on how we can truly diversify our sector, ensuring we can support and empower our beneficiaries in the future. Thanks for listening and that leads me to thank our corporate sponsors, Charity People, our platinum sponsor, Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast kit, Magda Aksumit for our website design, RR Yard Photography for our pro bono images, and Forrester Falls who have been playing throughout and are playing us out now.